I want to ask you a question. What is the most important thing uh, that you need to do today? What's the most important thing you need to do today? All right. What's the most important thing that you need to do this month? Maybe what's the most important thing that you need to do this year? There's a lot of advice out there. Lots of people telling you how you probably should be answering those questions. Lots of people telling you what's best for you, uh, what you ought to do. Uh, In preparing for the sermon, I googled most important thing to do. I googled most important thing in your life. And as you can imagine, I got all sorts of interesting answers. The most important thing is to take care of your health. The most important thing is to invest in your relationships. The most important thing is to install a positive view of yourself. The most important thing is to live your purpose, your values, and your dreams. This one is one of my favorites. Uh, It's kind of funny. This is from Dr. Oz. The most important thing I want you to do this New Year's Day is to commit to my 31-day plan. It's been streamlined to jumpstart your energy, trim your waistline, increase your strength, and ease your stress. Follow this plan and revolutionize your life in just one month. All right. (laughs) Well, Paul has some advice for us too. Uh, Some advice that comes out of the book of Philippians. And the most important thing he says, right, the only thing I want you to do is to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. that's That's the main point of this section, and it's the main point of this sermon too. That we ought to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Our passage uh, before you begins with the words only. Right? Only. Only do this. You know, the force of this word is tremendous. What Paul is about to say to us is essential. It's critical. Right? Only do this. You ask the question, well, only do what? It says, only live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what I want you to do. Literally, Paul says, live as citizens worthily of the gospel of Christ. I think there might actually be a footnote in your Bible that says that. Literally, the Greek reads, live as citizens worthily of the gospel of Christ. And it's interesting to remember who Paul is writing to. Right? Paul is writing to a church in Philippi, uh, a, a church that is located on sort of the northern coast of uh, present-day Greece. And the recipients of this letter... Uh, lived in Greece, but their citizenship as a Roman colony was way far away in Rome, some 800 miles away. Roman citizens, citizens of that place 800 miles away, living here in Philippi. Now what Paul is saying is, you know how you're citizens of like a really far away country, Rome? Well, it turns out that you're citizens of another far away country too. You're citizens of heaven. Paul's going to make this point, right, in in Philippians 3.20. You can flip there and just look. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And Paul is taking that exact same logic and he's applying it here. He says, you aren't just citizens of Rome. Or to us, you aren't just citizens of Burlington. Uh, You're not just citizens of the United States. You are citizens of heaven. You are citizens who've been constituted. Uh, You've been brought together. You've been joined together by the gospel. The gospel has brought you together. It's made you a people. 
as a citizen of heaven, right, you have special duties and you have special responsibilities that sort of come with the territory. There's perks, right? But you also have special duties and responsibilities. Namely, you ought to live in such a way that others might catch a glimpse of who your king is and what your kingdom is like. In other letters of his, Paul is going to use the language of ambassadorship to really get across this idea. He says, I'm an ambassador in chains in one of his letters. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians, a, church, or, uh, a letter he's writing to the church in Corinth, he says, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Legal dictionaries will define an ambassador as an official representative who's been commissioned by a sovereign prince or state to do business in a faraway place. Do you know who the U.S. ambassador is to Thailand? Anybody? I didn't either. I had to look it up. Her name's Christy Kelly, right? Well, what does Christy Kelly do as a U.S. ambassador? Well, in the strictest sense, Christy Kelly represents the President of the United States to the government of Thailand. He's representing the entire United States to him and to that country. And by similar logic, right, you represent the President of Heaven, right, Jesus, the ultimate, you've been commissioned by the ultimate sovereign, right, Jesus, to do business here on earth, right, or in our case, Burlington. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're a citizen of heaven. What's the business that you've been commissioned to do? Well, the business is to live a life worthy of the gospel. To live as citizens or ambassadors of heaven here on earth. To represent, to represent, right, Jesus to the city of Burlington. To live in such a way that the people in our city or on your campus or in your cubicle would know who your king is, right? What your kingdom is like. That's the main point of today's passage. Well, the last part of verse 27 sort of informs how we are supposed to do that. Right? How are we supposed to live as Christ's ambassadors here on earth, here in Burlington? Well, Paul says, you're to do that with one spirit, as one person, for one purpose. One spirit, one person, one purpose. Let's break this down, right? First, he says we ought to do it with one spirit. This one spirit does not mean like an esprit de corps, like that sense of community that you get maybe when you walk through that front door or you sit down at a table for a potluck. Um, it's not the sense of community you get when we play together uh, or even pray together. That's a good feeling, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about here, right? What, or better yet, who Paul is alluding to here is the third person of the Trinity. Right? Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit, the one Holy Spirit of God. You might ask yourself, why does he mention the Holy Spirit here at the top of this list? The reason why is that the Holy Spirit is the one who is ultimately responsible for our community. He's ultimately responsible for that sense of community uh, you know, way down the road, but he's responsible for the community that we have. He's responsible for the church. The church exists because the Holy Spirit has brought it into being. Right? 
Another way of thinking about this is the church is God's good idea. Right? It's not ours. The church is God's good creation. Now, we didn't make it up. We didn't create it. He did. The reason church exists is not because, you know, some men and women 2,000 years ago said, you know what would be a great thing to do on Sunday morning? You know what would be a great thing to do on, like, Sunday afternoon? Church. (laughs) That's not the reason why church exists. The reason why the church exists is because when God saves sinners like you, and when God saves sinners like you and you and you and, like, me, Right? He's not just drawing us to himself. He's also drawing us to, to closer to one another. Right? It's kind of like, you can almost imagine it like a giant bear hug. Right? God's embrace right, includes you, but includes the people around you too. Right? And as he pulls you in closer to himself, you find everyone in his, his embrace is getting squeezed closer together as well. Right? And drawing us to himself, he's also drawing us closer to one another. We're in his embrace, like a giant bear hug. And Apostle Peter makes a very similar to Paul here in one of his letters that he writes to another church, not too far from Philippi. He says in that letter, as you come to him, a living stone that's been rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? We're living stones that are being built by God together to form a house. The church exists because God has brought it into being. It's not Joseph Pensack's idea. It's not my idea. It's not our Presbyterian's idea. It's God's idea. He is the one who is building it. He's the one who is growing it. He is the one who is sustaining it. And this brings us to Paul's second point, right? Answering this question, how are we to be Christ's ambassadors here in Burlington? And then he says, we are to do that as one mind or as one person. To extend uh, this brick building metaphor, right? There are lots of bricks or there's lots of living stones, but there's just one building, right? Or to use the body metaphor, a, a metaphor that Paul likes to use in, in other letters that he's written. Right? There's lots of body parts. There's an ear, there's a mouth, there's a leg, there's a stomach. Right? There's a big toe. Right? Lots of parts, but one body. Right? Similarly, there's lots of people in this church, but it's just one church. Right? Paul, in saying this, is not saying that you, the individual, don't matter. You do, right? We all have a part to play. Pardon the pun, right? But what he is saying is that we are all one. What Paul is saying is that Redeemer Burlington is much more than just the sum of its parts. Redeemer Burlington is not just a room full of individuals. It's not just Tim McCoy plus Anna Cook plus Mike and Jen Hyder, you know, plus Michelle. It's not just a those people sort of in this space together. What he's saying is that when you add all these people together, when you add all of us up together, we're something actually new. We're a new entity. We're Redeemer Burlington. We're a new body. Something that didn't exist before. Right? And we are to reflect Christ. We are to represent Christ 
as that, right? Not just as individuals, but as a new body, as Redeemer Burlington. The reason why we as a church have the ability to represent Christ better than any of us could on our own is not simply that we have more resources at our disposal when we kind of pool them together as we just did not too long ago. That's true. When you add up all of our resources together, we're able to do much more work in the city than you or I could ever do it on our own. But that's not really the reason why Paul says we have the ability to represent Christ, to be his ambassador here as a church better than an individual. It goes much deeper than that. right? Community reflects and represents God better than an individual because God himself is communal. Right? God, one God, three persons. One divine community, three divine people in it. And we're made in the image of that God. We are created for community. More to Paul's point here. It's when we break bread together, when we support one another through trials and hardships together, when we say sorry to one another, when we forgive one another. It's when we do all of these things together that a watching world catches a glimpse of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. We cannot image these relationships on our own. We cannot image love, forgiveness, reconciliation by ourselves, right? But that is what the gospel is. That is who Jesus, what Jesus is all about, and it requires community to do that, for us to operate as one body, right? The church is birthed by God. Its members work in concert as one body. And they work together, as Paul puts it, striving side by side for one purpose. And the one purpose is the faith of the gospel. Simply put, our purpose as a church, as one body, is to make the gospel known. This reinforces, right, Paul's main point, that we are to be Christ's ambassadors to the city of Burlington. We're to make the gospel known. What is the gospel? I want to be very clear here. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. The gospel is not something that you do. The gospel is something that God has done for you. You don't do the gospel. You receive the gospel. At the heart of this gospel or good news message is a message of salvation. God saves sinners. And the way that God saves sinners is in and through His Son. Jesus lived and He died and He was raised again for you. On the cross, your sins, which made a separation between you and God, were being dealt with once and for all. On the cross, Jesus cried, It is finished. This dividing wall that separated you and God has been, it's been torn away. The curtain has come down. Right? You and God can be reconciled. And this is why what we preach is a message of reconciliation. Again, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Your sins have been dealt with once and for all. We preach a message of reconciliation. 
At the same time, we want to live out of this reality. We want to love people because God has loved hard to love people. He's loved us. Right? We want to forgive others because we have been forgiven. We want to be generous with our wealth and resources because God gave up everything in order that we might be brought in. We want to welcome the outsider and not push them further away because this is how God has dealt with us. He pursues outsiders. Right? We can go on and on and on explaining what some of the fruit or some of the results of the gospel are. But again... When we do these things, we're not doing the gospel. Rather, the gospel is doing something to us. That's an important point. We're not doing the gospel. The gospel is doing something to us. It's changing our hearts. The main point Paul is making in verse 27 is that we ought to live lives worthy of the gospel. To live as citizens or as ambassadors for Christ. And your life individually and our life corporately together as one church has one overarching purpose, to make the gospel known, to reveal who Jesus is and what heaven is like by the way that we speak and by the way that we treat one another. Only do this, Paul says, and I want you to do this no matter what. This is the most important thing. Well, you can almost anticipate the Philippians' objection. But Paul, you, know, you don't know what, it's, what we're up against. There's people out there who don't like us very much, who hate us and who want to hurt us. You know, fill in the blank. Well, Paul gets this, right? He understands. Heck, he's writing this letter from prison. He's an ambassador for Christ in chains. He's not oblivious to the fact that Christians can do and will face opposition for their faith. Right? Jesus promised that we would. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you... Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word, the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Right? We don't need to belabor this point. Right? Nor do we need to belabor the point that Opposition to the gospel comes in all shapes and sizes. Right? There's imprisonment like Paul faces and like many Christians face around the globe. Uh, there is martyrdom. Uh, we can think of ISIS and the Christians in Iraq. Um, but then there are other smaller things but, uh, that you might face at home. You don't really face imprisonment. You don't really face martyrdom. But there's social exclusion. Right? There's slander. Uh, there's other things. Right? The point that Paul's making about opposition, it's not the question, it's not the question whether or not you're going to face it. Uh, you are going to. Uh, the question is, how are you going to respond to it? And that, Paul says, is, I want, to keep, I want you to do this. I want you to only keep doing what you're supposed to do. Right? Only live as citizens of Christ in this place, in this time and in this place. This is a sign of your salvation. The last thing I want to focus on is how Paul encourages them to do this, right? How does Paul encourage them to keep doing this in the face of opposition, to not let up? You know, he doesn't say, just do this because Jesus said to. Yeah, it's going to be tough, just suck it up. He doesn't say that, right? He doesn't guilt trip them, guilt trip them. And he doesn't coerce them or manipulate them into doing this. 
Rather, he encourages them. And the way that he encourages them is by reminding them that they are not alone, right? That you and I are not alone. Look at the end of this passage. Throughout this letter and throughout the New Testament corpus, Paul and other apostles will remind you and me again and again and again that God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, uh, and was raised again for you and for me. Right? God has given us Jesus. You are not alone. Right? Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right? On top of that, and as Paul points out, God has granted, literally graciously given us faith in Jesus. That's in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that not only should you believe in him, right, not only, for it has been graciously given to you that not only should you believe in him, right, that your faith is a gift, but that you should suffer as well. Right, your suffering with Jesus and for Jesus proves that you belong to him. Right, that you are a sheep of his pasture. Um, finally, God has given us not just his son, right, not just the gift of faith that we would cling to his, to his promises, He's also given us the gift of one another. He's given us the gift of the church. This is found in verse 30. Paul says there, you are engaged in the same conflict as me. In other words, we're in this together. Suffering is bad, but suffering alone is even worse. Do you know the saying, misery loves company? It's also a great restaurant in Winooski, by the way. It's a popular saying. That's where they got it from. Right? They didn't make that up. Just like we didn't make church up. Misery loves company. You know, you, you can interpret that expression to mean that sad people are happy when the people around them are sad too. Right? But you can also understand that phrase that miserable, com- or miserable people, sad people... Right, people who are suffering, they love company. They need company. That the friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief or bereavement, who can tolerate us for not having all the answers. This is a true friend. Misery loves company. Aloneness is not the will of God, either in ordinary life or in the Christian life, right? He is communal. We are made in his image. We are created for community. And sin disrupts this community, but God is at work to bring us back in. He has given us a son. He has given us the gift of faith. He has given us the gift of one another, right? He's given us the church. God wants us, my friends, right, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, He wants us to live as citizens of heaven, to live as his ambassadors here on earth, here in the city of Burlington. You cannot do this work alone. You need the church. This, representing Christ, is our calling together. And together we are to reflect what it means to be loved. We are to reflect what it means to be forgiven. We are to reflect what it means to be the recipients of God's grace. And when we do this, we're not doing the gospel, right? The gospel is doing something to us. And when we do this, we are representing Jesus 
and his kingdom well. And may God give us the grace to continue to do so. Let's pray.